I've always admired authors who create a fictional version of their real homes. The Albany of William Kennedy, Elena Ferrante's Naples, the Monterey Peninsula of John Steinbeck. And I have always admired authors who sound that sexy on radio. I'm Luke Baumgarten. That was Jess Walter. This is Range. And in this episode, we're going to talk to Jess about his new book, The Cold Millions. But first, if you'll permit me, I can't stop talking in author voice. If you'll permit me, just a teeny bit of housekeeping. First and foremost, before I forget, thank you to Wishing Tree Books in the South Perry neighborhood of Spokane for helping me locate and then letting me borrow your advanced copy so that I could read it in time to do this interview. If you like this episode, it is due entirely to them. And if you don't like it, it's their fault too. So, I mean, that's kind of the way responsibility works. You want the credit, you also got to take the blame. I, I bear no responsibility for it. I am merely the vessel. In all seriousness, though, this was a clutch play. It was a key assist, especially my good friend Sharma Shields, who helped facilitate the drop. Well, and now I feel a brief aside coming on. I'm sorry. This book is all about the history of Spokane, but in many ways, the parallels between the historic Spokane and Spokane today. And one of the things that struck me about going, and I feel a little bit bashful. This was my first time to Wishing Tree Books to pick up this book. I've lived two places besides Spokane in my life, Italy for a year and Seattle for a year. And when I lived in Seattle, I lived on Queen Anne. And one of the coolest things, one of the things that felt like little neighborhood inside a big city vibe about Queen Anne were all the shops and restaurants, like my favorite Thai place in the neighborhood, was like tucked into an old craftsman house. And that's what Wishing Tree Books is. And so I got this feeling walking up to the, the steps, like Spokane's come a long way in you know the 15 years I've been a professional, ascension human, whatever. And I actually didn't know that we would ever get to this point, <laughs> if I'm being totally honest. I never thought we'd reach that level where there's such a demand, these neighborhoods are so vibrant that we're repurposing houses that are you know a door or two off the main drag in Perry uh, for retail. It's super cool, I love it. So yeah, Spokane's kind of going through a renaissance that I haven't seen in my lifetime, and I think it's safe to say hasn't existed since, well, honestly, since the period of Jess's book, 1909, that period, which was largely unknown to me, and is really, really cool. So we'll get to that in a second. Sit tight, I'm on my increasingly digressive housekeeping. So I've got two points to talk about. I've already had one digression. I also want to sort of add a, a, a bit of a mea culpa. If I sound like I've taken too much children's NyQuil, if I sound like Sheriff Knezovich at an anti-Antifa press conference, if I sound like I've OD'd on beta blockers, it's because it's one in the morning when I'm recording this. And I'm not saying that as an apology or an excuse, but as a clever segue to the second piece of housekeeping I have, which is I'm burning the midnight oil like a 20-something cub reporter to get this piece done in time for the novel's release, which is today, Tuesday, October 27th, because I was burning the midnight oil like a 20-something cub reporter last night, writing a rebuttal to Stacey Cole's just god-awful endorsement of Donald Trump in the Spokesman Review in the frickin' Sunday paper. Now, for those OG heads who can remember all the way back to episode two, you'll know that this is not the first time I've dunked on an awful take from Stacey Cole's. But before you even get your hopes up, I will not be doing a dramatic reading. There was a request from Mrs. McGillicuddy. She is unavailable. My awful quasi-mid-Atlantic accent 
will not be appearing in this episode. It's a serious business. We got a really awesome interview to get to with Jess, but I did write something in the newsletter. So there's a link to that in the show description as well. 100% not intended this way, and I 100% would uh, much rather this just dog shit editorial not exist. But you know you play the hand you're dealt in this life, and especially when the dealer is a plutocrat who can do whatever the fuck he wants because he's a scion of generational wealth and his family has basically owned this city for four generations. So you know lemons out of lemonade, this uh, this editorial actually does sort of illustrate and underscore the, I would say, meta-thesis of Jess's book, which is that the past is prologue. And while there are a lot of differences between the Spokane of 1909 and the Spokane of today, there are also a lot of similarities, especially around uh, income inequality, wealth inequality, the immiseration of workers, and an increasing militancy on all sides. So yeah, tuck that into your supplemental reading uh, as you're working through the book. And yeah, the damn thing couldn't be any more timely, so let's just get into it and return briefly to Jess's delicious pre-recorded tenor. This is how he talks about the book in the book trailer. They woke on a ball field. Bums, tramps, hobos, stiffs. They floated in from mines and farms and log camps, filled every flop and boarding house, slept in parks and alleys, and on the night just past, this abandoned ball field. My new novel, The Cold Millions, begins here, Peaceful Valley, Spokane, Washington, 1909. The book mixes fiction and history in a way that's almost impressionistic, blending past events with present concerns. And what past events might those be, Jess? The free speech riots of 1909 in Spokane and the Wobblies, the industrial workers of the world, the first union to take women, freed slaves, Native Americans, anyone with a job could be a Wobbly. It's a story of social unrest, of police brutality, of deep inequality, of the ache of wanting a better world, issues that resonate today. The IWW was outlawed from speaking and organizing on the streets. In Spokane, Wobblies staged the first successful nonviolent protests in US history, a model for civil rights leaders and other peaceful activists. Speeches dissolved into riots, police and private goons beat protesters. There were mass arrests, 500 people locked up, the jails so full they threw prisoners in an old high school. So yeah, relevant and relatable. This video I'm clipping from is six minutes of pure gold. It's in the show notes. I encourage you to go watch it in full, either before or after, or before and after you buy the book and read it. Okay, last little bit of background before we get into the interview. There were a million things I wanted to talk about. Didn't have a ton of time. Just only had about an hour and 10 minutes to chat. Did our best, packed a lot in, missed a couple things. One of those things is a brief snippet of a song called Hallelujah, I'm a Bum. It's actually a pretty famous folk song, proto-country song. I, I actually first heard about it a couple weeks ago, oddly, coincidentally, on a podcast called Citations Needed, which was talking about the way that... Uh, sort of pop country has subverted and made neoliberal one of the more sort of subversive and populist uh, American music traditions 
folk and country. But anyways, this song is just like dripping with sarcasm for the moralizing that was happening in this time around vagrancy. Like these men who were bums weren't like necessarily homeless by choice, although culturally it kind of became a lifestyle because they were being exploited so brutally by their employers. They kind of had no choice but to make the best of it and sort of develop this tramping lifestyle that they sort of becomes a deeply rooted part of like the American mythos. Like you couldn't have Kerouac if you didn't have these guys, I don't think. So when this song popped up in Jess's novel, I'm like, what, what's the deal with this? And I went and looked it up. And like, not only was this song of the time, it was adopted as the official anthem of the Spokane branch of the International Workers of the World. And not only was it our official branch title, the Little Red Songbook, which is an absolutely legendary labor songbook, was published for the first time in Spokane. That's how vibrant this movement was in our weird little frontier boomtown. It's wild. So I'm going to play part of it, and then we're going to get into the interview. But I want you to just pay attention to how funny it is. There was this really biting sense of humor that the hobos and bums and tramps had about their lot in life. Sort of a gallows humor. And that's mostly what I'm going for here. But as you're listening to this, also be thinking about how eerily similar this is to a lot of the stories we've heard about the gig economy and how often these contingent workers are looked down upon and blamed for their own immiseration. Sing it, Max. Rejoice and be glad, for the springtime has come. We can throw down our shovels and go on the bum. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. Why don't you work like other men do? How the hell can I work when there's no work to do? Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. Why don't you save all the money you earn? Gosh, if I didn't eat, I'd have money to burn. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. I like my boss. He's a good friend of mine. That is why I am standing out in the bread line. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. I like Jim Hill, he's a friend, good friend of mine. That's why I am hiking down Jim Hill's main line. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. I don't like work, and work don't like me, and that is the reason that I'm so hungry. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. I'm Luke Baumgarten. This is Range. Episode 16, more like hot millions. Hey, 
Jess Walter, thank you so much for coming on Range. Thanks, Luke. I can't believe it's taken this long to have me on. I feel like you've been ducking me. I know, man. I'm sorry. It's just been really busy. I've had a lot of really big guests. So um, Yeah, I know. I got bumped for uh, uh, for Joe Biden one day. <laughs> so you're in the middle of press for this new book, The Cold Millions. And we chatted a little bit earlier about your, the schedule you're on. So I'm, I'm really, really grateful you could squeeze us in between. Like, I think you said it was all things considered in a, in a private audience with the Pope. Yeah, something like that. I think it was uh, all things considered in a, in a buddy's creative writing class, I think. <laughs> um, so I've got way too many questions, and it's kind of your fault for writing a book that gave me so much to think about. So uh, let's just jump in. And maybe can we start with the setting? Like it's Spokane, but it's kind of a Spokane I was shocked by. Yeah, that's sort of that was one of the first impulses that brought me to write about this period was I was shocked by it, too. I I, uh, I remember when I worked at the newspaper, um, going down to the morgue and reading stories about the early 1900s and just what a vibrant, uh, wild place it was. And, uh, you know, doubling in size every six or seven years. And, um, you know, what, other than San Francisco, the, the theater capital of the West and, um, you know, really it, it, it's hard to imagine now, but imagine that the railroad is the internet. Hmm. Um, there are seven, and to get to the West Coast, you know, you either go through Utah and south that way, you know, south through Nevada, or you go through um, Spokane and you venture out, you know, to, to Portland and Seattle and Vancouver. And Spokane had seven major railways coming through it. So it was this thriving city. Um, and then to have discovered the the free speech riots of 1909. Um, I just wanted to write about that place. And, it, and in a less specific way, I collect old postcards. And I have this old postcard of Riverside Avenue, packed with people getting on the streetcar, walking, horses, cars. And I just used to stare at it and think, I want to write about that world. And that's incredible. Yeah. So let's talk about 1909. There's some pretty remarkable labor strikes, like really militant socialist free speech each strikes put on by the the international workers of the world, the Wobblies. And it's honestly one of the wildest years in the life of any city I've ever read about, let alone, you know, as my grandma would have said, Spokane, Washington. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, that's what drew me to it. You know, I, I grew up in a labor Democrat family and a proud, um, moderate, progressive, I guess. And to think that that one of the first free speech protests and peaceful civil, civil disobedience occurred in Spokane was, I just thought that's fascinating. I wanna know more about that. And the deeper I dove in, you know, it was really was pitting um, these elements of the city against one another. The, the wealth of the, of the mining and timber and agriculture concerns um, and the, the police who were really in their pocket versus, um, transient workers, hobos, and labor activists who came to organize them. And, uh, you know, when I started working on the novel, the thing that really, the thing I really wanted to write about was income inequality. It is yeah. probably the issue that has driven me um, the craziest and that I think is at the bottom of a lot of what ails America right now is this incredible gap between the wealthiest and the poorest. Um, and so that, that was the other thing about 1909 is you're at the end of the last Gilded Age. And when we think yeah. of the Gilded Age, 
I don't know, we tend to think about, um, you know, Manhattan or uh, the, the uh, steel industry in the Northeast, but it really played out here um, as a whole lot of in class warfare in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. There's some incredibly evocative scenes throughout the entire book, and it's kind of a strength of yours as a writer in general. But The Splendor was amazing, but also just as kind of jaw-dropping was The Squalor. At one point, you pause on a trap door in the Monroe Street Bridge where yeah. garbage crews are dumping trash into the middle of the Spokane River. Yeah, it was actually the Howard Street Bridge. It's fascinating doing that research because um, you have to remember the reason you pick a river for a city is not you know, it, it'll run your turbines, but unlike the Spokane tribe who lived on it to fish and eat, um, that was never the reason to put the city here. It was sewage. Wow. <laughs> it will haul your sewage away, unlike Seattle, where the tide brings it back every day. And so, you know, all the all of the waste from industry was dumped in it. Well, also all the garbage was thrown in it. You know, yeah. as a Spokane resident, you'd haul your garbage down to the river and throw it on the banks, and hopefully the river would take it away. But as we all know, the river starts to get lower, and the garbage was stinking up the banks. Wow. So the solution was not to you know throw your garbage somewhere else but to put um yeah hatches in the in the bridges um and you know when you're doing research and you come across a detail like that you are able to write about um the environment and climate change in a way that's not didactic that yeah. every reader understands when a garbage truck pulls up lifts a hatch and dumps garbage right into the middle of the river so that it won't stink up the banks yeah you know that little, like the huge chandelier at Saranac Commons? Have you seen that? Yeah. That's yeah. all glass that was dug out of the Sp the banks of the Spokane River by one guy who passed away a couple of years ago. Yeah. 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 It's not surprising. I mean, um, even now, you know, you go down, I live in West Central and you go down below where Natatorium Park used to be. And when they were done with that, they just pushed it in the river, you know, the, the concrete, the footings, you know, um, the, the uh, I, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite causes in Spokane is the River Keeper because that is yeah. apolitical and uncontroversial. We have this gem of a river. This, you know, and it, it in many ways is the central motif to the novel, and it's the central motif to our lives. You know, I've almost always lived right on the river. Growing up as a kid, our house was right on the river. Wow. But, you know, the only thing between me and the river was the railroad tracks and that's incredible um, and so you know to to be to have this uh have people devoted to cleaning it up uh to see those rafters on it uh you know every weekend is really really thrilling to see you know that we're finally cleaning up the, the this thing at the heart of what our city is yeah You've already touched on it a little bit, but um, like the comparisons that happen in this book, and this is actually kind of awesome as a guy. And you, you and I have had conversations about this over the years where we're always, Spokane's always comparing itself to Seattle. The comparisons yeah. that get made about Spokane in this book, though, are like to, to Chicago and San Francisco. And then when you do mention Seattle for the first time, you mention it as a, quote, ugly harbor blight, almost to dismiss it in comparison to Spokane. Was it really that amped up that it could be compared favorably to Chicago? Oh, yeah. I mean, and you know, one of the other impulses in writing this book is you only have to wander downtown, wander through the buildings. I mean, Ann and I have lived in three straight hundred-year-old houses in Spokane. Oh. The architecture, the parks, you know, they brought in the Olmsted 
rapid group that had done Central Park yeah. uh, and did a million dollar park project. I don't know what that is in money today, but imagine we brought in yeah. the greatest park builders in the world. Um, it was, and it didn't last long. I mean, I'm writing about sort of the end of this period in which Spokane was considered um, more civilized than Seattle, really. I mean, and again, just think the biggest interest industries at the time are what timber and mining yeah. and agriculture. And we are the center of those things. All we don't have things. shipping because, you know, Seattle has that. Right. Uh, and Spokane was smaller than Seattle, but not by much. I mean, huh. Seattle was a 240,000. Spokane was a hundred and some thousand, you know, and they were both doubling in size every six or seven years. The Seattleites talk about the growth they've experienced with Amazon and you know some of the tech companies but they've never grown at the rate that those two cities did then yeah. it, it's in some ways a little bit of teasing seattle you know um, <laughs> I, I i liked making rye and gig hate that place you yeah. know they didn't like that it was um foggy and wet and gig calls it a shithole of prosperity which <laughs> yeah uh, I think some people would still call it that, you know, but, uh, but in some ways it's just that gentle ribbing, you know, I'm, uh, have a younger brother and I, the way we show love is to uh, roast and tease one another. And so yeah. uh, th there's a part of that in the novel too, you know, but, and there's also a character um, named Del Dalbo, who's no fan of Spokane either. Well, I want to talk about that later. Uh, Cause I think he actually, you're absolutely right. He has an angle on the, the city and the way it works that nobody else has, but I, I want to save that for a little bit later in the interview. Sure. So despite the splendor, there's like really, really crushing poverty as well. And that it's a structural sort of poverty. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? What you found? Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing about having seven railways come through here is um, that Spokane was Tramp Central Station. It's not an accident that the industrial workers of the world looking for a way to organize itinerant workers, hobos, vagrants, tramps, would come to Spokane. Um, there were, you know, most of the east side of downtown um, was flop apartments wow. where you would come and work while you went to the you know, 20 to 30 to 40 job agencies on Stevens Street and lined up to get a job. Uh, all, and those men are going to need prostitutes and they're going to need bars and, yeah. um, and they're going to need wild gambling. And most of those were owned by the ma mining magnates too. You, know, right. you, you, you uh, pay the man $6 to work and then he comes into town and spends four of it at your establishments. Yeah. You know, you're, uh, giving it out on one end and getting on the other. Um, it's what you call a vertically integrated business model. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, brilliant in, in its way. You know, it's funny. We we tend to think of homelessness now as, you know, as a problem of crime or of, of mental illness. And, in, and many times it is, but sometimes it's just working people pushed off the end of the railing too. And yeah. and I think there was a lot of that in Spokane, you know, again, they would go when, when harvest was over, they would often go roust these uh, hobo camps and drive them out of town. And Spokane did have a bad reputation as having police officers who would rough you up if you, you know, if you tried to sleep in the parks. Yeah. That east end of downtown, was that actually called the Tenderloin, like San Francisco back then? Uh, yeah. Some people called every, they called it Skid Row or the Tenderloin. Um, that's why I use it a lowercase t. It's not the Tenderloin of oh, uh, San Francisco. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, you called any any area like that. And it came around because that's often where the butchers worked. You know, it's oh, not, funny. you'd think maybe it was a brothel term, but yeah. you know, there was a, there was a small Chinatown downtown where um, you could get, you know, shirts laundered 
covered and uh, there were opium dens. Uh, there were any, any number of taverns and boarding houses and flop houses where prostitutes worked. And it was a, it was a pretty seedy time. Yeah. As a novelist will do, you sort of compress a lot of you know, 1903, 05, 07 research into one year. Um, And you were definitely writing dramatically, but no, that's, that was what the city would have felt like then. Mm -hmm. You kind of already talked about income inequality in the way that it parallels uh, our present moment. And you, in in this awesome book trailer, our mutual friend Raja and Ellen put together. Yeah, isn't it cool? Yeah, it's amazing. But um, you say the book is almost impressionistic, blending past events and present concerns. So we've already talked about the income inequality stuff. It strikes me that these these job agents are like, that was kind of like the first gig economy almost. Well, if you'll notice, the brothers are named Rye and Gig. Oh, yeah. And that wasn't that was intentional. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I, li- I liked the nickname, and I liked that you know in 1909 you line up for a job, and your employer is going to charge you a dollar, and then they're going to send you out on a on a work site, and you're going to pay a dollar for that job, and they might split that with the foreman and send you away after two weeks. But that's not all of it. You also might have to pay a little bit for your bedding and your food. Um, if you cut your foot off, there's no guarantee that they're going to help you on that work site. Um, There's no, there's no health insurance and the industrial workers of the world in 1909 are one of the first labor unions. They're agitating, you know, for a a six day work week instead of seven (laughs) for 12 hour days, instead of 14 for 10 hour days, instead of 12 um, to not employ children. You know, they're, they're really asking for the most basic fair treatment of workers. And now if you are in the gig economy, if you're driving for Uber, there's nothing to keep you from working seven days a week. You do four days for Lyft and three, for uber you um you're paying for your own insurance if you wreck your car that's on you you know um of course the conditions are better um but we've somehow forgotten in this country the value of of the labor movement and that it created an entire middle class uh, an historic middle class it didn't exist anywhere um this gap between the poor and the wealthy is not is not a bug in capitalism it's it's kind of a feature and you have to you have to have regulation that pushes against that and and so that you know setting this novel at the dawn of the labor movement is a way i think to remind us that you know these are important things that, that we don't have anymore you know we don't except for you know teachers unions or some some public service unions you know really the the labor side of things has really taken a beating since the 1980s yeah that's true um let's uh let's move on to the characters now because we, you mentioned gig and rye and let's so let's just start with the two brothers like how did they grow in your mind uh and, and in the telling yeah you know i always thought the novel would be about young people elizabeth Gurley flynn who's another character i'm sure we'll talk about who's a real historical figure was 19 when she came in spokane so and and because i'm writing about this movement that becomes aligned with communism later, you know, I want to write about the youthful idealistic side of it. And as I was working on the novel, I kept looking out at the world again. And in many ways, I was trying to write a contemporary novel while writing an historical novel. Mm-hmm. And I was watching the Parkland shooting survivors and, uh. and kids walking out for climate change. And, and even the young people leading the fight in Black Lives Matters, 
the real activism, the real movement comes from young people. And so the first thing I wanted was for Ryan Gig to be young. I wanted, I wanted the world to sort of be opening up to them. They're very different. Gig is kind of a charmer, um, sees himself as an intellectual, is really taken by the idealistic side of the industrial workers of the world. Rye really wants to belong. He wants a home. Um, he's surprisingly a bit of a clothes horse. He, uh, <laughs> he, really, he loves suits and gloves. And he is more moderate. He would go more slowly. You know, yeah. He wants to belong to a union, but he's not sure about all this revolution stuff. And again, that, when you're creating characters like that, you, you like that they can embody two sides of an argument you might have in your own head. Yeah. You know? Do we need to blow this whole thing up or can we fix the system within? And, and yet, like any characters, they have to become more than those two arguments. They have to become, you know, living people. And, uh, and so you get surprised by someone like Rye, you know, walking uh, down Sprague, looking in stores at clothes. You know, you get surprised um, at how tenderly, you know, gig feels toward um, Ursula the Great, the, uh, the vaudeville singer he falls for. So, um, yeah, they, that's sort of how they grew. And then, and then I just wanted to start them, you know, I, my, both of my grandfathers were itinerant workers in the 1930s. Um, yeah. My grandpa Jess arrived here on a train um, that he'd hopped in the Dakotas. And, wow. and to hear my grandpa Jess talk about riding trains, it always seemed so romantic to me. Yeah. Um, you know, you talk about waiting for it to slow down and, you know, how you, how you uh, avoided the rail guards and all those things. And so there was a part of them that I, I wanted it to be like an adventure story. My favorite book as a kid was Treasure Island. And I used to think of jumping a train, like stowing away on a pirate ship. <laughs> um, so I wanted to have, I wanted them to have that side, that sort of adventurous side, and then to get really swept up in, in, you know, the, the, the really um, unbelievable and brutal, um, uh, free speech riots that took over Spokane in that fall and spring. Yeah. Uh, so gig, like you said, he's kind of a, he's kind of, a, he has a habit of finding his way into people's beds. One of them is, uh, <laughs> this vaudeville singer, Ursula, the great who yeah. her act, I mean, she's actually an incredible singer later in the book. You find out she has a really amazing voice, but the act itself is mostly stripping in a cage with a cougar. So can you talk about her and like what she embodies about the age? Yeah. It's funny that, um, uh, there's there, when I was doing my research, I would, I would be in the library. And, uh, one of the things I miss about just going to a library and being able to sit in a room is that you don't know what you're looking for on the internet. We have to type in Google the thing we're looking for yeah. and then it takes us exactly there. But I would just read old newspapers thinking, how much does a suit cost? You know, why are there hatches <laughs> in, the, in the bridges? Um, and, and one of the amazing things that that you know you find is that there were um, that you know because Spokane was such an amazing theater town, these you know these theaters moving from west to east, that the range of entertainment was incredible. And again, it's another thing that I did, you know, looking over five or six years to get a range of shows that might have actually been at these theaters. I, and I was so immersed in it. I'm taking notes. And often when I'm doing research like this, I've got my notebook open, I'm going through microfilm and alongside the notes of real things, I'll write things that I've invented, just whatever my imagination comes up with. Sure. So I got home that night and after spending the day in the library and the next day I was looking at my notes and I saw Ursula the Great 
sings and dances in a cage with a live cougar. <laughs> and I thought, did I read about that or did I invent it? And it, it was so typical of the kinds of shows I was seeing. I honestly couldn't remember. So I went back the next day and looked through all the microfilm I'd looked through and I could find no evidence of her. So I'm pretty sure I invented her. But th there's another amazing book called Showtown, Theater and Culture in the Pacific Northwest by Holly George, um, University of Oklahoma Press. And it's specifically about um, what a great showtown Spokane was. So hopefully people who are more interested will go um, track down her book, which is really terrific. Yeah. So you mentioned Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. Um, in, in the last, your last two novels, you kind of played around with historical figures and, and put them into your fiction. What made you sort of make her a main protagonist of the story? You know, I've actually always done that. I don't know that people think about it, but John Gotti is in Citizen Vince and Tom oh. Foley is in Citizen Vince. That's and right. Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter are in Citizen Vince. Um, That's true. Uh, and so I've always sort of imagined that my characters exist in the real world. And um, in this case, you know, it was, this was pre, I mean, the novel in many ways wanted to be about her. Hmm. Um, and it's almost like there are certain characters, I think, that are better created from a distance. You know, famously, The Great Gatsby is not narrated by Gatsby himself, but by Nick, his neighbor. Right. And I think in that way, um, writing a novel about Gurley Flynn, but she was really the impulse for me in a lot of ways because of, you know, what she did. It, it's hard to imagine 10 years before women have the right to vote, a young woman at 16 leaving her home in New York to go west to fight for workers' rights. But yeah, that's amazing. what she did. Um, and, you know, I, I always saw this as a Western, as a kind of, just because of the violence, yeah. the way Spokane is sort of moving from a frontier town to a, to a much more modern industrial town. So I always saw this as a kind of Western and it always made me laugh to imagine that instead of Clint Eastwood being the stranger who rides into town, the stranger who rides into town is a pregnant 19 year old demanding you know, economic and social justice and making speeches about emancipating the vagina you know i just thought <laughs> what an amazing character that is imagine that now let alone 110 years yeah. ago yeah. again it made me think about those young activists who's who sometimes shame me with the way they are able to distill arguments yeah. you know especially with something like gun control you know how do you look someone in the eye and say there's nothing we can do and they've survived a school shooting you know right. Uh, and so I, I really wanted her to kind of be at the center of the novel. She shows up and Rye ends up traveling around with her, watching her, you know, raise money and consciousness about this free speech they're having. And 500 people have been arrested in Spokane by the police and jailed. Right. Uh, and she really was the one who led a successful nonviolent protest that ended with, not to give the novel away, but but that ended as a success, you know, mm -hmm. and um, one of the first really successful nonviolent protests in American history, one that was studied by civil rights leaders later and yeah. others. So, um, you know, just just the historical impact of it, the fact that it's somehow slipped between the uh, the waves and isn't something we talk about is uh, really drew me to her and made me want to include her in the novel. Yeah, absolutely. And Ryan Gig both get swept up in those arrests. Gig ends up in jail for a good chunk of the book, and then Rye sort of like 
tags along with Elizabeth Gurley Flynn kind of just to get his brother out of jail and try to raise money for his defense. And she's obviously on this like grand mission, but it's the, the way that relationship develops is really, really beautiful. But she, she, there are a number of incredible speeches in this book, including, I think I'll thread one in later when I've got more time. So we were under a time crunch here, but that one in Seattle, here we go. This is from page 136, at least in the, uh, the advanced edition. Brothers and sisters, look around this room at our bodies, our blood, the fuel for their machine. We can use the same fuel to start a movement. These bodies, this blood, to demand fair pay, basic medical care, rights for women, Negroes, Indians, to demand nothing less than the American right to speak out against corruption, against greed and unfairness. Join us on the front lines, donate money, help young Ryan Dolan and his brother. For when we've won in Spokane, we'll bring the fight here to Seattle, to San Francisco and Fresno, to Portland and Minneapolis. We will fill a room like this in every building on every block, in every city, in every state in this country. And our righteousness will spill on into the streets, into the lumber camps and mining halls. Join us in Spokane on November 29th and to fight their corruption with our peace. And room by room, street by street, city by city, on rails and docks, in factories and farms, anywhere a working man or woman is cheated from a dollar and clings to a freight ladder for life and livelihood, we will stand as one and say, no more, we demand a better world. Whew. Which just like, yeah. left my jaw on the floor. Were these actual documented speeches or did you just channel her and write your own? You know, I did take language from some of the speeches of hers that I found. Um, one of the reasons that that I didn't make a novel about only Elizabeth Gurley Flynn is that it, you know, a novel of someone going around giving speeches uh, would be um, <laughs> what there was a draft where there was quite a bit more of that. And I just, in some ways, it's hard to hear speeches about issues that uh, we aren't facing now. You know, she wasn't talking generality. She was saying, <laughs> you know, you shouldn't have to pay a dollar to get a job. That's yeah. Um, but yeah, sometimes she's quoted directly. The things she, I have her say in her trial are exactly what the trial record had her say, you know, what wow. she's quoted as in the newspaper. And, yeah. and so again, it's the common sense of those arguments and the power of them. Uh, and, and Rye really does I really like their relationship because it's clear Rye falls for her in a way, yeah. but he doesn't fall for her in the boy meets girl kind of way. She is the most impressive individual he's ever met. It's an admiration know? thing. Yeah. Totally. yeah it's, it's almost like he's not sure he's you know sexually attracted to her or something. It's almost just like he's in love with her mind or something or her ideas and, and just her commitment, I guess. Yeah. I mean, he does at the end of the novel say he thinks he might have loved her, but that the word would have made no sense around her. Yeah. <laughs> no. That's a really fascinating. Um, yeah, that was great. Yeah, and I and so I think I think he's drawn to her. He's sometimes intimidated by her. He's you know um, he does a couple of things that fills that fill him with shame. You know, he, yeah. when he puts, puts her in danger. But it, but I, I loved that draw. I love his being pulled in by her power and charisma. She also believes in a style of protest that he's not really ready for. You know, yeah. he he'd like to just have a house and a, and yeah and some warm boots. And um, I don't know that he's really ready to sign up for revolution. And that's what she's leading. You know, she is, she is a revolutionary. There's no doubt. Yeah. So to your main antagonists, we got police chief John Sullivan, who was a real historical figure. He was the, he was the acting chief at this exact moment in history. That's right. Uh, and presided over these, uh, the crackdown. I mean, the, it should be said that maybe without going off on too much of a tangent here, like the riots were caused by the police. It was the police who rioted, right? It, it's interesting because 
the other thing we think of as brand new is that news, you know, that Fox News delivers right wing and MSNBC delivers left and, you know, blah. But that was the same then. The, uh, there, yeah. were, there were four newspapers in Spokane that you get your news from. So it really depends which news source you read. Oh, wow. um, but yeah, the, for months, the IWW had been giving speeches and trying to, trying to organize. And the city outlawed more than three people meeting on the street. Uh, and the reason they did this was to keep them from giving speeches and organizing. Yeah. And when the churches complained, they said, what if we want to have outdoor service? They made an exception for churches. Yeah. So the IWW, they very much instigated this action, which was to have their people come and speak and sing. The IWW was big on singing. They, yeah. they, they had an IWW songbook. Here's a quick little tidbit. The IWW songbook was actually published in Spokane. That's how much of an epicenter of this sort of activity Spokane was at the time. The Little Red Songbook, which is actually famous, like legendary in labor circles, was published here. Um, they made a call for hobos and tramps to come from all over and come and sing and talk. Uh, and the crackdown started right away. The yeah. police began, um, you know, by just sort of roughly pulling people off to jail. But there's a scene, there's an especially brutal scene with a um, with a sweat box uh, that used to be at the old Spokane jail, which is um, about where the library is now. That's where the old jail used to be. Oh, wow. And, and they and they really did pack more than 20 um, people into a nine by six foot um, cell underneath uh, underneath a steam vent and you know swept them. Um, people they really did release vagrants who then died. You know they they didn't let them die in the jail, but they would turn them loose on the street. Um, people were beaten. Uh, in the end, 500 protesters were arrested. They filled the jail. They filled the brig at Fort George Wright. And there was an old school downtown called Lincoln, not the Lincoln School that's up on the South Hill. It was yeah. near downtown. And they they filled it with prisoners and then hired um, part-time deputies to guard it. No heat, um, just threw them in these old classrooms. They burned the doors and the books to stay to stay warm. Wow. And they put rock piles out on the street and shackled the prisoners and had them drag them out to beat rocks into dust. Um, the city's plan was to, you know, to beat this down physically. Yeah. And, and the union at first was able to just keep bringing more and more protesters to town and they sort of ran out of bodies. And that's when Elizabeth wow. Gurley Flynn, you know, it was her actions after that, that that really broke this whole thing. They, they, they convicted every single leader uh, of this, protest except her and wow. it was just the power of her speech and also i think you know her ability to again to just say this is about you know america <laughs> you know, this is about our rights yeah. and um so i i think she was just such a powerful spokesman for for the movement uh but yeah that that was you know, it was an incredibly violent response and not just by the police many of the you know mining and timber people employed private security guards. Um, there were several security companies working in Spokane, the Pinkertons, Allied, uh, and a couple of others. And their job was to go to meetings and make sure they weren't forming unions and to bust heads if they had to. And, wow. um, and then there was violence on the other side too. You have to remember not too many years earlier, uh, a group of angry miners had hijacked a train and gone and blown up the uh, Bunker Hill mine. So, oh, that's right. Um, yeah. 
it was a period where it felt almost as if a class war might break out, yeah. which was what made the IWW's nonviolent tactics, I think, so successful because they were able to win the hearts and minds of people who saw they were, you know, really standing up for fair treatment. Yeah. Um, so Police Chief John Sullivan's a, a historical character. And then the one of the other big antagonists is a, a capitalist sort of magnate named Lemuel Brand. Brand's a fictional character, though I could have imagined him being any one of, and he certainly seems like an amalgamation of the men who built yeah. the city. Yeah. So why did you fictionalize a real chief like Sullivan and then completely make up a character like Brand? Why didn't you make him like, I don't know. Um, the novel begins with two events that really occurred. And again, this won't give anything away, um, but police officer named Waterbury, who was shot to death while uh, investigating um, burglaries on the South Hill just a few days before the... the uh, oh, wow. Uh, so, so that he's a real figure. And then John Sullivan, um, the police chief of Spokane at the toward the end of this of this period was assassinated in his own home shot to death um and i always and again i i really wanted to write about this period in which spokane is you know and on one side this modern city and on the other side still a kind of frontier town you know yeah. um i also found sullivan himself to be such a fascinating character i don't think of him as a villain at all yeah. um, brand you know i th- i i do think his you know, his motivation and everything. I think Sullivan is one of those people who believed he was doing the right thing. Hmm. And to crawl inside that character's head uh, and try to try to picture how he would have seen himself. Yeah. Um, to me, that's what I love doing in fiction. And so I, I have the longest uh, acknowledgements I've ever used in a novel to explain, you know, which parts are real and which um, <laughs> are fiction. Uh, you know, there was a time when I thought this would make a great nonfiction book too, and I think it would. Oh, but I, I try to draw attention to some of the sources and the acknowledgments that I used because I really do think this is the kind of thing. You know, I went to school in Spokane; I knew nothing about this period. You know, and yeah. I do think this is the kind of thing. I, I'll be talking to a Whitworth class um, tomorrow. That's uh, a, a history class, and you know, it's, I, I really do think having people know about this period in history is, is terrific. As a, as a fiction writer, you, you're doing very different things though. You want a story that moves and compels. And for me, if I could, if I could fit the real characters in um, alongside the fiction um, without distorting and bending their characters, um, then that's what I tried to do. And Sullivan, again, the way, the way he was mocked for his Irish brogue, um, the way in which he felt like he took a fall for the rest of the city. Yeah. Um, he has a line in the book that, that all he did was stand up against the wind, but when they look for someone to blame, it's the man who's standing. Um, <laughs> and I thought, I, I just found that to be such a poignant thing, you know, for someone who is so clearly wrong historically, you know, so yeah. from my vantage is, is on the wrong wrong side of things, but um, I can imagine some law enforcement people reading him and thinking he's uh, not on the villainy side at all of this story. The last words that you put in his uh, mouth, and this might be too spoilery, so if you want me to cut it, sort of his ending soliloquy is, I forgave my enemies, the thieves, the vagrants, and unionists, but I did not forgive the politicians and newspaper men because they are beneath forgiveness. (laughs) 
which I thought was awesome. And as a former newspaper man yourself, like, <laughs> why did you put those words in Sullivan's mouth? I mean, it's what he believed. He he went to his death saying that the, that's what happened. And and I again, I found that so compelling. You know, there there is a certain kind of person of action for whom politics and writing and those things are just irritants in a way. Yeah. Uh, reading those quotes, you know, where the Spokane Press, which was the populist labor newspaper, yeah. would make his brogue look so awful. They'd spell life, loif, L-O-I-F-E, Norden moi loif, you know, <laughs> and uh, he just seemed sensitive, you know, he seemed, yeah. Um, but yeah, that if you watch that video, which I think you're going to post, you can drive by John Sullivan's house and it doesn't look that different from when he was living there. Wow. And, you know, you can drive past the Glover mansion or through Brown's addition up Rockwood and see the wealth that existed in parts of the city. You know, it's, um, it's, it's one of the great things about, for me, about writing this novel here is my research is right around me all the time. Well, that was one of the things that I thought was so amazing. It, it sort of demonstrates the the massive inequality that you're talking about. Because like the, the police chief, which is, you know, it's it's one of our highest paid positions now in, in a modern city. Sullivan lived in like a, you know, a, a very modest house in West Central or something. Yeah, just above the current courthouse on Cinto. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, you can just drive right by his house. I mean, it's it's not a bad house. And again, I live in West Central, so I think all the best people live here. But um, <laughs> I've always said it's one of my favorite things about Spokane, that we are not as segregated by income as some places. You know, another way to say that, that I've said it, is you're never more than two blocks from a bad neighborhood. Yeah, um, yeah. And I love that. People always think I'm complaining or making fun of it, but I think that's that civilizes a place. Um, but the wealth was really concentrated at the time in timber and mining and and then those services the lawyers and the doctors that serve them the bankers you know it yeah. a really fair comparison is silicon valley you know the yeah. um mining and timber and railroad were to that economy what the internet economy is to us so spokane was one of those hotbeds of, of this kind of economy incredible and then wasn't again until you know, never. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love, I love it about this city that the train still barrels through downtown that, yeah. you know, I, I think it's the place that we are. You see those ghosts everywhere. I find it thrilling having researched this book for a while to just, you know, wander through neighborhoods and see all the turn of the century houses. Yeah. When, when Gurley and Rye are in Seattle, there's this great conversation they have where she, uh, she's sort of done something. It doesn't really matter what she's done, but she said to Raya, do you ever think back with regret on the choices you've made? And Raya responds, he wasn't sure how to answer that. Had he made choices? And then a couple sentences later, the first choice he remembered making was to step on the soapbox after Gig got knocked from it. So the first choice he remembers making is deciding to take part in this protest. And that was a really profound moment for me. It makes me think about how like the object of people like Brand, the robber barons or whatever you want to call them, and it's hard to miss the parallels to today, like we've already discussed, is to keep people living so close to the edge that they just exist to survive rather than being able to make choices that might like allow them to thrive. Does that does that track for you? Or Yeah, no, I think that's exactly what I wanted, you know, a reader to think in that moment, you know, that standing on that box taking a stand, voting, getting involved in protests. For Rye, he he really has been living by his wits and, you know, just trying to make a go of it. And I think that's true of, that's certainly true of people now. The thing you don't 
most of us don't remember about being poor, myself included. It's been a long time since I lived as a poor person. But, I, you know, in my late teens and early 20s, I was a father living in government housing and, huh. you know, without a checking account, you know, I just yeah. had whatever money I had. And, you know, if your car breaks down, you don't have a safety net. You know, you're yeah. you're done. Um, you're if you get a speeding ticket, that might you might not be able to afford that. And then another ticket, and then pretty soon there's a bench warrant. And yeah, okay. It would be negligent of me not to cut in at this point and mention if you're curious how modern law enforcement still uses a history of poverty to pull people off the streets. We're talking mere weeks ago, literal socialists literally going to protest state violence, being arrested for a warrant that equates to being poor. Check out our last episode, literally the most recent episode, episode 15, Chain Gang Reaction with Jeremy Logan. And then if you want to refresh your course on how our criminal legal system does its absolute best to grind indigent defendants to a pulp, keeping them in jail, keeping them locked in cycles of abuse. Our two-parter Independence Day episode that we did over the 4th of July with our friends at the Bail Project give you a sense of how that happens to this day. Cool. Back to the fun stuff. Just just the struggle of life keeps a lot of people from engaging in what most of us take for granted. And I think, you know, what I really wanted Rye to experience in a few of those scenes, there's another scene in Lem Brand's library where the title of the novel comes from, The Cold Millions, where he's looking around and, and he, th- he knows there must be eight or 10 layers of wealth between him and someone like this. Yeah. But when he sits there and realizes there might be 70,000 layers of wealth or a billion or an infinite number, yeah. um, it just breaks his heart. It breaks his heart that his brother, who's rotting in a jail, will never sit in a room where a radiator sends hot water through the floor to keep your feet warm in a right. floor-to-ceiling library that the man who owns the library has never bothered reading any of the books. Well, not only that, but the steam that's coming, that's heating that house and making it comfortable is the steam that's literally torturing Gig at the jail. Right, right exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he has this moment of despair and empathy where he thinks about a girl that he saw dead on a train and he thinks about the cold millions who will never be in this room sipping this brandy, eating this cookie and, yeah. and that he'll never be here again either. And he kind of wishes he didn't know it existed, you know, <laughs> and, um, and I, that, that kind of moment is sort of what you write fiction for in that moment i haven't named my characters ryan gig as a rye nod to the gig economy i have now <laughs> just this young person who is feeling that ache of wanting more and not just wanting more for himself but wanting more fairness and more equality and wanting those things that you know we think america is about and you know another moment is the one you described you know when he thinks about the cho- whether or not he's made choices and, and what that means. Hmm. It's like we're getting a little close to when you need to go. So maybe we'll skip ahead a little bit. So, okay. You know, I can go till about 3.08. So I have to jump up to the thing at 3.10. So. Okay, gotcha. So, well, then maybe I will, because we you've already mentioned Del Dalvo. I think yeah. he's one of the most fascinating characters. Mm-hmm. Kind, again, like one of the things I think is great about your fiction in general is you don't really, it's kind of oversimplifying to say you have antagonists. I don't think Brand is a particularly... Uh, <laughs> He's, he's not a, a particularly sympathetic character, but you're right. You don't really have bad guys. Yeah. Uh, Del Dalvo is this private investigator from Denver who just absolutely shreds Spokane's pretensions when he <laughs> arrives on the train. So here's a quote just briefly. Spokane gave me the morbs, right blood blister of a town. 
Six-month millionaires and skunk hobos and none in between. Spokane, a gilded carriage passing by peasants bathing in the very river they shat in. And then a couple uh, sentences later, when he actually gets to town, I couldn't believe how the syphilitic town had metastasized. Smoke seeped from 20,000 chimneys, pillars to an endless gray ceiling. Just imagining the pollution and, you know, the stuff that we still deal with with air quality today. The city was twice the size of the last time I'd hated being there. A box of misery spilled over the whole river valley. So it strikes me that, like, Brand thinks they're creating a, a capitalist Xanadu here. Yes. And... The tramps, like the Dolans are amazed for the the theater and the, you know, the whorehouses and all, just like the life that's here. Right. And it's only somebody like Dell who really helps really literally keep the gears greased. Yeah. And sometimes with human blood yeah. to see what's really sort of holding the whole thing together. Right. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. Dell was a fun character, right? I, I was doing all this research in, into Pinkertons. Um, you know, Dashiell Hammett, the author, used to live in Spokane and was a, yeah. was a Pinkerton agent who um, later in his life, um, told the story that that certain mining interests tried to hire him to um, to murder uh, um, uh, Frank. Uh, well, I can't think of Frank's last name. Uh, to murder a, an IWW leader who was really killed. They offered him five thousand dollars to commit this murder, and, and wow. he wouldn't do it. So that I was always thinking about him and that. Quickly here, if you're fascinated by this story, how Dashiell Hammett, the father of the modern detective novel, lived in Spokane and actually had Spokane in a cameo in his novel. It doesn't make it into the Humphrey Bogart movie, but Spokane is in Maltese Falcon. How Hammett was solicited to murder Frank Little, one of the main organizing leaders of the IWW in Spokane. And then how Little was actually later successfully lynched in Butte, Montana by who knows who, uh, it still remains an unsolved mystery to this day. I'll leave those links in the show notes. There isn't always a good reason to look at our show notes, but these I'm, I'm typing up right now and they're, they're pretty good. Frank Little is buried in a pauper's grave in Butte, Montana, and his name is almost forgotten to history. But at the time of his funeral, 10,000 people were in the funeral procession and an estimated 3,500 others were following along. Can you think of a single leader locally that would inspire that sort of a uh, that sort of throng of mourners i certainly can't so yeah anyway a lot of wonderful little details i read more about the pinkertons james mcparland who was scottish and so i had this idea that i would have a mcparland like former Pinkerton come to town. And so I was doing all this research and the language was what got to me. <laughs> and the fact that we don't say the morbs anymore, you know, oh, <laughs> give me the morbs. <laughs> I just thought we should always say the morbs. <laughs> he, he gets lobcocked. It's, I just, his lobcocked. That was such a great, <laughs> his language was just so great. And I'm reading this 19th century kind of early noirish detective stuff. And I saw him as a kind of missing link between the Western and the noir. But he, he definitely, you know, his feeling about Spokane is that this place is um, grim and growing too fast. And and I especially love that he hates boosters, um, you know, which... <laughs> yeah, uh, I love that too. Which makes me laugh. And it might be my favorite scene. Again, it's not giving anything away in the book to say that the third time someone tells him Spokane has the biggest theater stage in the country, he punches him in the throat. <laughs> that might have been my favorite bit in the whole novel. But Well, and I mean, I, I would be lying if I said that I, I didn't see myself in those booster characters. You know, it's kind of like what I do some, for part of my life, you know? 
Hey, I, I was like, yeah, I'd punch myself in the face too if I talked one more time about how awesome the art scene is here. Oh my, oh me too. I, but I, I, I've always treated Spokane the way I treat family. If someone criticizes it, I will, I'll be the biggest booster ever. Yeah. But if people start going on about it, then I'm the first to crack on it too. <laughs> um, but, but I think it's, you know, for Dell, it's, I think his loathing of the place is also that he's back here. He's done something horrible here once. Yeah. Um, yep. So I think a lot of that has to do with him. Uh, there, there are a couple other characters. There's a, there's a native American character named Jules, you know, who looks out and says, you know, that progress is cutting down all the trees, killing everything and then calling it progress, you know? And, yeah. um, you can't help but imagine what this, what the falls look like, what this natural place looked like, you know, before, you know, this incredible growth before this city yeah. just appears over 30 years, you know, in this, this rush to build the thing. And so, yeah, I, I think to have a character like Dell remark on that, um, it's easy to have a character like Jules bemoan what's been lost. But then to have the other side, the darker side of that, uh, represented by Dell remarking that this city, you know, has a kind of grim quality. I always saw this book as being like the TV show Deadwood, but with a hundred thousand people. <laughs> yeah, I could see that for you sure. Yep. And the city is growing like that. It's trying to figure out what civilization means and battling its own darkest impulses and the things that built it, which for every city that, you know, says that its beginning was, you know, this guy built a lumber mill and that guy built a church. And, you know, there's, there's another side. We, as noted in the novel, this is a city named for the people who were brutally driven from it. Yeah, absolutely. And that we can never escape that irony. Oh God. Yep. So the structure of the book is like mostly what I think I'd call like a close third person it's seeing the characters from outside, but it kind of follows rise sort of feelings and ruminations closer than it, than others. Uh, but then you have these first person chapters. That's when the characters really speak in their own voice. So the Dell chapter, there's a girly Flynn chapter. That's an absolute riot. Uh, and, and some of them follow the central characters and then Jules, who's an important secondary character. And some are just about characters that don't even exist in the rest of the book either. It's almost like you're painting an impressionistic portrait of the, the, the era. But then, so here's the two things again. And if, if we get down this conversation, it feels too spoilery. No, uh, no. Let me know, but I don't care if anybody reads the book. Okay. That's <laughs> well, good. Because uh, this is the thing that just ate me up and I love it. The, the, there's an epilogue, but the final chapter in the book is a first person of Sullivan. So why did you end it with him? Well, it doesn't really, it really does end with, with Rye. I mean, I feel like an epilogue is part of the book. Um, sure. But yeah, I, I definitely wanted to bookend the, the, the 1909, 1910 period of the book with these two police officers. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that always felt to me to be a big part of what I was doing. It, it begins there and it ends there, you know? And so yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the structure. It's for me, it's the way I think as a novelist. And I always wanted this story to have the depth of character, but also the breadth of the world. Mm. I wanted to bring all these other voices in. Um, when you read the novel, you'll see on the cover, the roiling waterfalls below Monroe. And then in the beginning of each of those chapters, um, the first one being Waterbury, talking about the police officer shot to death the night he's out patrolling the South Hill, you'll see this swirling water image. And I uh, always thought of those chapters as like the undertow gotcha. uh, or, or a tributary. The main flow of the story is this, but I'm going to bring these other currents in. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's really evocative. And 
I wanted that motif of the river, you know, you write that Jules is in many ways a minor character, but I also think he announces the motif of the book when he says, we, we all go over alone. Yeah. Um, and getting to watch these characters go over. And I think that epilogue is very important. If you notice closely each chapter that is narrated in first person that has a date is the date of that character's death oh. and we get to see rye in 1964 100 years exactly after another chapter in which someone steals a fairy from plants fairy <laughs> right and in that hundred years of solitude you know i hope that you get to see the sort of history of spokane kind of played out within those you know within those voices and so that breadth for me is a way to expand the story beyond its banks you know to have yeah. the story flood over and be about more than just the 1909 labor action in Spokane but to actually be about the struggles we face now the eternal struggle to try to have justice and fairness yeah. um, to be about the way the city was settled you know the degradation of the environment and of the people who lived here for the sake of progress to ask ourselves as progressives what does progress mean how yeah. do we how do we go back and repair the, the damage that's been done while doing a better job taking care of the people um the cold millions who are still out there yeah. so for me i'm always looking for a way to make a novel expansive most readers yeah. are going to read it and think what a wild great tale of 1909 1910 but i hope they also come away thinking again about the moment they're in now and the world they live in now was it was it hard for you because ride does not actually get a first person chapter until the epilogue was it tough for you to like wait that long to give him his voice in that way oh any question that begins to a novelist with was it hard the answer is yes <laughs> <laughs> okay fine uh, it's funny that I've now, this is my ninth book because they're hard and, <laughs> um, and there's almost nothing accidental in them from yeah. gig and rye to these other chapters. It can seem incidental. And I can imagine a reader saying, why am I reading about someone stealing a ferry in 1864, you know? Um, and yet for me, building these elaborate models where everything sort of counts and matters. In some ways, it was not hard to stay away from Rye because I think more than almost any character I've ever written, I feel like he really grows and changes in this novel. Yeah. Um, in many ways, it is his coming of age story and finding his way into what he believes, you know, and what he cares about, and what's important to him. At one point, he talks about how he's swept along in the tide of history that his History is like being in a parade and then it moves on and leaves you behind. Yeah, that was um, a great line. I don't think he's he's only a spectator. I, I loved getting to meet him as a grandfather, retired yeah. from Kaiser, going to Playfair and betting on the last horse that takes a piss, listening to Dodger <laughs> games on the radio. I loved it. I, I get so attached to these characters that that epilogue to me was one of the most joyful things I got to write in the last few years because I got to see um, someone I had spent those four or five years with um, and see what happened to him, you know? And yeah. I, I think that's one of the things you can do with fiction is use time in a way that, you know, can seem profound. It feels like a very, very um, satisfying, although sad, I was kind of sad for a couple of days after I finished the book in, in, a, in a sort of like happy melancholy way, you know, yeah, like, sure. you know, whatever it's, it's very good. You know, so he spends a little time reflecting on his life in this epilogue. And, and one of the most powerful moments for me thinking of how I've grown up in the city almost my entire life was the 
the way he characterizes 10 years later, December 1919, he says, Spokane had become a quiet and conservative place by then. The rushes had ended, timber and mining were in decline, the population had flattened, and temperance and religious forces had succeeded in shutting down the vice in Spokane. So first of all, I felt like that's the Spokane I grew up in, <laughs> and like quiet yeah. and conservative. And like when, and every time I hear these stories about the Wobblies, I'm like, I just can't picture that. You know, it's like I have to, it's almost as great a leap of imagination to imagine like Spokane in 1909 as it would have been to like, for me to imagine like, you know, the Russian revolution in 1917 right. or something. Sure. But then also, secondly, like the temperance thing really hit me like a ton of bricks, uh, thinking about the working class aspect of this. Like, it's like so hard for us to imagine fixing a system or the big attempt in 1909 to fix the system fails or the system that like leads people to these lives of despair and things like alcoholism. But then when vice gets bad enough, we just punish the sufferers. Sure. And then that's the way culture moves on. We hack off the limb rather than preventing the gangrene. Although I can't say that, you know, allowing people staggering around downtown drunk, you know, that the women who were forced into prostitution, you know, it, we went long for a, uh, a wilder Spokane, but sure. um, I, I think that's one of the reasons, again, you know, we started talking about how I grew up in a labor Democrat family and I wanted Rye to have the benefits of the labor movement. Uh -huh. You know, he, he was able to raise his kids in a place in which he could pay for them to go to school and get married. And, you know, he had the life that he wanted because of the successes, not of the IWW, but, um, you know, that leading edge of revolution often isn't the one that gets across the finish line, but they push everyone else forward. You know, you look at the gains that Americans have made in an issue like gay marriage, you know, yeah. in which Barack Obama had to run for president, either pretending to not be for it or not really being for it. Yeah. Just a short time later, it's not even an issue. We do make this social progress. Yeah. It never happens fast enough. And if I were 21, I would probably be out in the streets right now because not only is it not, are we not making progress? We've gone so far backward the last few years. Yeah. But I, I think Rye, you know, as sleepy and tired and quiet as Spokane gets, I think that has as much to do with economy as anything else. That's a good point. We, we never replaced mining and timber and agriculture. Never. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. In many ways, we still haven't. And I, I think one of the great things Spokane has done in the last decade or last 15 years is instead of looking to Seattle and waiting for some big corporation to come rescue us we've kind of taken portland's route to cool yeah. you know um I, my son has in his apartment in seattle spokane doesn't suck which i think <laughs> of as keep the keep portland weird uh, yeah you know yep. Um, we know what it means that it doesn't suck. We are the greatest B students in the history of the world here. In <laughs> and we're fine with not sucking, you know. And, and you know what? That's a great place to be. So I, I think, you know, while we all want Spokane to be vibrant, but I think there's a right way to go about that too, you know. And I yeah. think the city has done that through a revitalized downtown, through smarter transportation, through the arts, through music, through, um, you know, the work you guys have done at terrain you know it's all come up from within again from those young people who say why not why not do this yeah. and and that to me has been a thrilling thing to watch in Spokane in the last 20 years and and so I think progress is made and it's made at a pace we wouldn't like and, and when you take steps backward the way we had the last few years it's horrifying yeah um, but I I I end up 
usually optimistic, uh, and in part because the more young people I meet, the more I see they have the kind of drive and the belief in fairness that, um, that the characters in this novel have. Well, that's a beautiful place. And I always, I've actually been asking everybody I have on uh, where they get their hope from. So I think you've just done it. You need to leave in two minutes. Oh. I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm tempted to ask you a final question about why you made Rise oldest son a uh, Ayn Rand reading Goldwater Republican. <laughs> but I think we could leave that for another time. Um, well, I can answer quickly. It was just so I could write the line that he's one of those men of fragile confidence who must believe that he's created the world he lives in. Oh, God, that was um, a great line too. Yeah, I, I, it's not a totally happy ending for Rye. His grandkids are terrible at baseball, and uh, and his son Greg is a car salesman. So. Well, it also it, it foreshadows to some degree the way that the the union movement got taken for granted, right? Like totally. he, this, these kids were raised with a level of yeah. comfort that Rye definitely didn't have, and it, they take it for granted in a way that there's other forces, obviously, but it's partially yeah. the, the taking that that labor movement for granted that allowed, you know the late seventies and eighties to happen. Yeah. And I think it goes again, back to that conversation that Rye has with Gurley Flynn about how you keep battling when the war seems so hard to win and you keep battling because, you know, that's what you do and, and you do it for those next people in Spokane, you know, who won't ever believe what a boring place it was in 1984. You know, they're, they will be as shocked to hear that as, you know, as I was to see those postcards of all those people on the street or for you to see this center of progressive nonviolent protest, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, you we build the place we wish we could live in. Hmm. That's beautiful, man. All right, well, thank you so much for your time. It's, it was yeah. it was a really beautiful book. Uh, I'm going to oh, gush nice. about it before and after, so there'll be a little intro and outro here. But it was it was so much fun to read, man. Thank you so much. Gush away, I appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Great to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too. Uh, one of these days in real life. I know. Can't can't wait. We should talk yeah. about college basketball. You, me, and Ralph uh, or something. Yeah. That'd be fun. That on. We'd totally do that. All right, cool. All right, All right man. Take care. Take care. That was a really, really cool interview. All right, it is now pushing 4.30 a.m., and I, even at my best, I could not match the eloquence of what I'm queuing up right here as we speak. So I'm going to let Jess have the last word. This is the end of his book trailer, tying past to present in a way that I think only he can. Have a great week, y'all. It's the truth of both history and historical fiction, I think, that the deeper you look into the past, the more you find yourself encountering the present moment. I know that was the case with the cold millions. These themes, the nature of progress, our endless struggle for social equality, they churn at the heart of this novel the way the Spokane River cuts through my western city, unceasing and inevitable, carving a path through time and stone to the ocean.